Well, hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. And on today's show, with concerns about vaccinations and especially the AstraZeneca jab, I go to the legend of doctoring in Australia, Dr. Ross Walker, and ask just how worried should we be about being jabbed. And then we hear from the author of the book about the legendary economist who saved the world from the worst of policies in the Great Depression, the global financial crisis, and now the coronavirus crash slash recession. I'm talking about Lord John Maynard Keynes and Justin Walsh has written a book called Investing with Keynes and yes he was a great stock market player as well. You can't hold legends back. So let's kick off with Ross Walker and find out just how scared we should be about the AstraZeneca jab. Well, this program is called Learning from Legends, and you couldn't get a more legendary doctor than Dr. Ross Walker. Thanks for joining us, Ross. My pleasure, Pete. Now, I know you're laughing, but let's face it. Like When we were young, it was Dr. Wright, wasn't it, on the on the midday show? His real name is Dr. Knight, isn't it? I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. A, John, or James, is a good friend of mine now. Hi there. Yeah. Uh, no, he's, he's a lovely guy. A great guy. Man. He's still, still alive in his 90s. Yeah, yeah. And his, his son is an accountant. I've had some dealing with as well. Um, um, but I want to talk to you about the vaccination issues, because this is really the big political issue. And it has medical uh, important uh, facts that need to be dealt with. But they also have economic implications as well, Ross. And I know you don't give a toss about economics or Bunnings or anything that's, you know, grossly manly, apart from the sporting side of Ross Walker. But... um, I want to get to the heart of this. We've got to start with AstraZeneca because, you know, this has actually been a curveball not only for the economy but for the Prime Minister's popularity as well. So it's a big issue. Ross, how worried should we be about AstraZeneca? Absolutely not. And this has just been, in my view, media hype. Let's put this in perspective. Firstly, if you look at 100 people who get COVID for whatever reason, 80 out of 100 just get a minor illness, a bit of a cold, and get better. But the 20 people who get it more seriously, which is typically older, more vulnerable people, but still occasionally younger people are getting it. In the US now, with the third wave of COVID, the the older people have been vaccinated, so they're fine. It's the younger ones who are getting it and quite often getting quite ill. So of the, say, 20 people who get serious COVID out of 100, at least five get serious clotting problems. So when you look at across the board, that's one in 20 people who get COVID get a serious clotting problem. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, the studies to date, and there's been probably, I think around, I'm making this this number up, but around 50 million people around the world who've been vaccinated with AstraZeneca or the J&J, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which are very similar technologies using this viral vector there's probably been about 300 cases of clotting out of about 50 million. Now, the standard clotting in Australia, about 50 people a day get some form of clotting for some other reason. So really, we're talking around a one in 250,000 chance of the AstraZeneca vaccine inducing a clot. And they're particularly rare types of clots. There are two basic types of clots that are induced by the AstraZeneca vaccine in one in 250,000 cases. So why we're even talking about it is beyond my thinking. But the cases are firstly, 
the vaccine-induced antibody, which is a chemical that attacks these little sticky cells called platelets and make the platelet levels drop. But even though the platelet levels are low, which typically is associated with bleeding, in this particular case, the platelet levels get very, very clumpy and stick together and can therefore form a clot. Very rare, but it may happen. Very analogous to a situation we've had in, in medicine for the last 50 years, there is a, a blood thinner called heparin, which has been used for over 50 years in medicine. And in about one to 2% of people who are given this heparin, they can get the same condition, this, this, this antibody-induced platelet clumping. So it's very rare, it's very treatable if it's picked up early. We've had potentially three cases in Australia out of about a million people being vaccinated with the, with the COVID vaccine, which, which is a bit less than one in 250,000 if you do the sums. And the, the last one was the woman who tragically died at the age of 48, who was a diabetic. We don't even know the end result there. We don't know the vaccine result. We don't know the autopsy result to see whether this was vaccine-induced uh, antibody problem that caused her to die. It could have been something else, but we don't know yet. We will know soon. Okay, and that, and that was my second question, uh, Ross. When we look at the people who've been affected by clots, is it, is it possible or likely or probable that they already had other conditions that made them vulnerable to clots or were they perfectly healthy and just bad luck AstraZeneca got them with the well, clot? I just want to mention the second potential clotting problem, mm. which is what we call cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Bit of a mouthful. Yeah. But what we're talking about, the veins that drain the brain can also form clots. Very, well, not common, but much more common to see that in pregnant women or women on the pill. So possibly if, if a, a woman in that situation is given the AstraZeneca or the J&J vaccine or, or the, the Sinovax, the Chinese vaccine or the Russian vaccine, all based around similar technologies, they also may get a clot. So, so, if, so if a woman's on the pill, that could be a, a, yeah. a potential issue. Okay. Yeah, and, and interestingly, when you look at just COVID generally or anything to do with COVID, whether it's the disease itself or the vaccination, we have to realise that all disease is genetic, whether it's heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, osteoporosis, there is always a strong genetic component to that, as there is with these diseases. So, for example, two brothers in Holland developed COVID in their 30s. Both these brothers had a defect in a part of the immune system called TLR7, and that's why one died and one developed severe COVID as a consequence of developing COVID. And in the same way, if someone has one of these antibody reactions to the vaccine or develop cerebral venous thrombosis. It's my view there are some other strongly genetic factors and possibly something like they're on the oral contraceptive pill that's brought out the problem. But we're still talking about extremely low numbers. And to bring up your point, because I know you're an economics man and I'm a medical man, we are destroying the world's economy by the reaction we've had to COVID. We still see the fact that our borders are completely shut to almost everybody. And even then, you've got to spend two weeks in quarantine when you come into Australia. So we have to start getting the world back to normal. And the only way we're going to do that is with a comprehensive vaccine program. Let, let me run through some of the fear mm. incidents I've had, particularly on Sunday morning. And I'll explain why. Sunday morning is the only morning I'm not doing radio of some kind. And so I feel as though I've got the courage to watch the ABC on Sunday morning. 
and what's Ooh. the news, you know. And I think I'm qualified to – and I love the ABC. I love it. But they do scare me. And mm. I wonder if they're scaring other people at the same time. And so when I hear that AstraZeneca is going to be barred for everybody under 50, yep. I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm 51 – Yep. Am I vulnerable? <laughs> because I'm, I'm only one year out of the, the danger zone. Hey, can I say every second email or phone call I get from patients these days uh, talking about, doctor, should I have the vaccine? I don't want to have this dreadful AstraZeneca vaccine. It's all scaremongering nonsense. Now, there's no way I'd like to accuse our ABC of scaremongering, but we should stop this right away because until we do, we're not going to get society back to normal. There is no major issues. And I, I said the other day in an editorial I wrote that if we looked at the complications or potential side effects from every medical procedure or medical drug, you'd never go anywhere near a drug because there are always consequences of medical therapy. So the consequences of being vaccinated are so incredibly low that I, I just think vaccination, in my view, is was the best advance of last century. And the vaccine technology these days using the RNA vaccine or even the viral vac uh, vaccine that they're, they're using with AstraZeneca and the Sinovac and the Russian vaccine and J&J &J, is so advanced that, that we have really pushed the vaccine to the level where we can really start stopping these dreadful diseases all around the world. Okay, now I know you won't admit to it, but you know, you're arguably the world's greatest cardiologist. And so, and don't, anyway, don't, I don't I'll want any argument. That, I don't want any argument. I'll give you the 50 bucks I owe you. Buddy. Okay, now, but I guess people with heart issues are saying, well, if there's, if there's clots with AstraZeneca, am I more vulnerable? Should I have the Pfizer because I've had a heart issue? No, not in the slightest because the AstraZeneca vaccine only induces those two very rare forms of clotting, which are very, very, very unusual in people over the age of 50. I think it's occurred once or twice in people from 50 to 60 and no one over the age of 60. So, no, if you've got heart issues, you're in your 50s or 50s plus, Go and have the vaccine. It's a very safe and good thing to do. Okay. Um, are you worried about? There's another thing that you know. It's not just. Let's be fair. It's not just the ABC. Fairfax journalists do. Oh, I think any scary. journalist loves yes, a scare. Yes, they do. If it does, it's if the it, media. Yeah, it's the media generally. Um, the second and the third strains. Like I, I'm feeling comfortable. You know, the vaccine came out quicker than we expected. The economy's booming, of course. And and I tipped all this, even though I, had, I, I use your your knowledge around vaccine possibilities and stuff like that. But I'm really happy about the economic boom I'm seeing. But could the second and third strains bring us undone? Well, yes, if we don't get vaccinated. Yeah. Because what's what's happening is anyone who's been vaccinated around the world has, or sorry, no one has been vaccinated around the world, has had severe COVID or died from COVID after the vaccination, whether they got the, the standard strain or the Oxford strain or the, sorry, the UK strain, the South African strain, the Brazilian strain. So that everyone's got a strain. Is there an Australian yeah. strain? Yeah, I have my own strain. I'm a bit upset about it. But, <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is that no one has developed the severe version of the disease after vaccination, regardless right. of the strain. But the problem in the US at the moment, to give you an example, the older people aren't getting COVID anymore because they've all been vaccinated. But the youngins who haven't been vaccinated are now being hit with the UK strain or the South African strain, and they're actually getting sicker 
and having problems. So yes, if we don't vaccinate, we're going to see these mutant strains causing more serious illnesses in people who haven't had the vaccine. So that's why we need to be vaccinated for goodness sake. And I, I've got to tell you, Peter, on Sunday night on my show, that's on the-, the yeah, Give um, it a free plug. It's the yeah, best free. health radio program in the world. I've heard them all. You're the best. Yeah. So, so on my show on Sunday night, I'm being vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine being filmed by Channel 9 just to show people that it's absolutely safe and I have no concerns about it whatsoever. I'll try even not to flinch when the needle goes in. Okay. I won't get you to repay the money you owe me before you do that either, Ross. That $50 you're talking about. Let's go Let's go to another issue that's kind of worried me. Um, f- um, young people, you, you brought it up. Is their behaviour in the sense that they didn't care about the coronavirus because they haven't been really badly affected by it. Mm. Has that made it a more challenging um, fl- uh, flu or, or virus because of their behaviour? You know, if, if they didn't go out drinking and carrying on and stuff like that, would it have, would it have been in less danger as a consequence? Oh, to, to some extent, Pete, but the reality is with the virus, the virus loves three things. It loves concentrated population, it loves air pollution, and it loves long, cold winters, none of which we really have in this country. Mm. But when people get together, I mean, if you, you remember back to the Christmas break when we had that Avalon outbreak yeah. in, in the northern beaches. Now, the reason for that is because on a hot Sunday afternoon, people went into the Avalon Bowling Club listening to a rock band playing, they're all singing and dancing in an enclosed area where the air conditioning was being recycled and they were singing and carrying on to dancing and sweating. And so therefore that's how you get the virus. So if the young'uns go out to a big event and they don't, they don't control their behavior and there's somebody who has a COVID, then yes, there will be more of a problem. So we, we know, for example, that because of last year, everyone was socially distancing, washing their hands, wearing masks, we didn't let people come in from overseas, the rates of any respiratory infections just dropped to the the floor. So we saw much less influenza last year. In fact, the year before, there was something like a 1,000 deaths from influenza. We've had in 14, 15 months about 900 deaths in Australia from COVID. So so the the social distancing works, the hand-washing works, the wearing the masks work. Now, I don't think we need to wear masks anymore, and I don't think we really need to be socially distancing as much anymore, because the reality is there's no COVID in Australia unless you're in a quarantine hotel. So we've been very successful in, in squashing it. But my concern is what's going to happen when we start going into winter where respiratory infections are obviously more common. So I think we still need to be sensible about all of this and, of course, need to be vaccinated. So you're worried about winter, and obviously more for the states like New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, South Australia, I guess, but WA and Queensland probably lesser? Yeah, yeah, because they have greater sun. And let, let me make a point to you. There was a study that came out from the US the other day, I think 2,500 counties in the US the counties that had the highest UV light index had the lowest rates of COVID death. And I've said this all along since the start of the pandemic because the evidence has come out. Just say COVID was sitting in front of you there on the table, Peter. Mm. It would take 18 hours for it to reduce to about half its strength. 
if you put it outside in the sun, it takes one minute. So there is no logic stopping people going to the beach or sitting on a park bench or all the things we did at the start of the pandemic, which I thought was just biologically ridiculous because there's been no cases of COVID spread in people outside. Even going to a supermarket, unless somebody walks past you, stops and coughs in your face, it's highly, highly unlikely you're going to pick up COVID just from that very, very slight uh, contact walking past someone. Do you think because of the change of attitude that we've all had about social distancing, sanitising, and even wearing masks, that the threat of influenza is going to be less in the future? I think it will to some extent. And the other exciting things that are happening in the influencer space, even in the COVID space, they're talking about a universal vaccine. You see, every year the flu virus picks up at free, its frequent flyer points traveling around the world mutating. Mm. So we need a different vaccine every year for influenza. But people are working around the world on a universal vaccine that doesn't look at the mutations, but look at looks at the core thing that makes something an influenza vac a virus and to develop a vaccine against the core rather than the spikes. So at the moment, for example, we're developing a vaccine against the spike protein of the coronavirus, but they're talking now about developing a, a stronger vaccine against the core of the virus so it can just be completely wiped out. So you only need the one shot and that's the end of it. Why is Europe having so much trouble? Okay, it's, I get it. It's colder in Europe in winter, but is, any, is there any other reason? I I like, to blame, I like to blame the Italians and their refusal to follow the, the rules and, and laws, but even the Germans are having a bit of trouble and they follow the rules. But, but Peter, you think about it. A, a place like Germany, you could fit into New South Wales a couple of times. England, you can, you can fit four times into New South Wales. So when you've got 60 million people living in such a concentrated area and also because it's so cold, they spend most of their time indoors, that's what, and, and the air pollution. So, for example, the Lombardy area of Italy around Milan, where they had the, the greatest outbreak at the start of the coronavirus at the start of last year, that's the most polluted part of Europe. Mm. And so that's why the coronavirus just loves those three things, the population, the, the pollution, and being indoors in cold, in cold weather. Now, you are a bit like me, an addicted OS traveller. How long before you think you see yourself... You know, lounging around in Europe, swanning around the, the great sights of the world. How long yeah. do you reckon it's going to be, Ross? I don't, I don't think we should even think about it before next year and even then until the vast majority of the world's population is properly vaccinated, ha having had their, at least their two shots. Until that happens, I think we're still stuck with with being very uh, nationally centric, so staying where we are. Mm. So I'd, be, I, I'd say probably... Uh, early or mid-2022. When does Australia get herd immunity? And then when does the world get herd yeah, when, immunity? When you, we've received, or we've achieved, sorry, either 70% of vaccination or 70% exposure to the coronavirus. So at the moment, probably only 5% of the world's population has been exposed. But once we get that, that, that amount vaccinated, so for example, in Israel, they're getting close to 70% herd immunity and their rates of of COVID have dropped right off. It's about 70% is the number. Okay. We haven't got coronavirus here because it's been basically you know, chased out of the country, but we haven't got herd immunity either, have we? No, no, because we haven't had that 70% vaccination. Mm. I mean, at the moment, what have we had? About 1.5 million doses administered out of 25 million people. 
Um, when you fly in the future, do you think you'll wear a mask? No, not. I hope not. I mean, I've, I've just come back from a round Australia uh, talking tour and I had to wear the mask all the time, apart from when I was eating on the plane. But I, I think in the future, once we've all been vaccinated, once COVID is a thing of the past, which I'm sincerely hoping it will be in the next 12 months, then I think we, we won't need to wear masks. I think we'll get back to relatively normal. What are the scare factors that my buddies in the media often throw out there, Ross? And I'll, I'll read the question that I've written down. Are we always going to be threatened by new viruses or could our experience with um, um, social distancing, sanitising and masks actually go to making us less vulnerable to viruses in the future? The problem with this is we don't know. And because you see, there, there are thousands and thousands of different viruses, bacteria that could cause all sorts of problems. I mean, one of the big concerns, Peter, is what we call the post-antibiotic era, which has got nothing to do with viruses. But we're now seeing, for example, around 20,000 deaths per year in the US from superbugs. And people are saying that we've probably got about 10 years left of antibiotic therapy, then all the bacteria are going to be completely resistant to antibiotics. So we may be seeing pandemics over the next 10, 15, 20 years coming from bacteria, not viruses. We, I mean, who'd heard of the coronavirus? We'd heard of SARS and MERS, but we didn't know there were coronaviruses until the last 12 months. So, so who knows what virus may, may happen? And there, as I said, there's a whole list of viruses that I promise you, you've never heard of. Some of them, hardly I've even heard of them, um, uh, that are just out there. And we don't know when they may mutate to become pandemics because with SARS and MERS, they, they affected about a thousand people and they just drifted off to nothing. But the COVID coronavirus has not done that. One of the many reasons why I respect you, Ross Walker, is that you never ever try to venture into the, the very heady and complicated world of economics. Well, on the other hand, you have seen me dabble and put my big nose into medical matters and you've occasionally texted me to say, get out of my territory, you don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. Uh, but when you're a commentator, you just have to comment. Um, and, Please do, Dr. <laughs> and I've, I've wondered, like, if AstraZeneca is a problem, potentially a problem of clots, why don't we just say to when you if if you're under fifty and you've had AstraZeneca, why don't you just take aspirin for a week, get the blood flowing better, reduce the chances of a clot? Look, there's there's no studies to show that taking the aspirin is going to stop you getting that rare antibody disorder, even though it's a platelet disorder and aspirin reduces platelet function, we just don't know because the studies haven't been done, mainly because the condition is so rare, you'd need a lot of people getting sick with this to see, and, and doing a placebo-controlled trial to see whether aspirin works. But I've had people ring me up and say, oh, doctor, I've had a clot, I'm on a blood thinner, can I have the AstraZeneca vaccine? They're probably the best people to have the AstraZeneca vaccine because mm. they're already on a blood thinner. And so people have said, well, should I be taking aspirin for a week or two before I have the vaccination? Mm. If you want to, it's not going to hurt you. Probably not a bad thing to do. But do I think it really matters? The answer is no, because I think this is all overdone scaremongering. So it sounds like Dr. Switzer actually had you know, a pretty worthwhile contribution then. Absolutely. Thank you. But I promise you, Peter, there's no way I'm going to try and make any economic contribution. As you know, yeah. when, when your lovely wife and my lovely wife and, and you and I have dinner 
and you start talking economics, I, my eyes roll over and I slip off to sleep. Yeah, and, and when I want you to shut up, I just mention the word Bunnings and the very yeah. thought of doing any work around the house just scares the pants off you. No, no, absolutely. All right, one last one then. Yeah, I like to think I ask, I ask all the right questions. You do. But you do. I always like to ask my expert, is there a better question I should have asked about the vaccination? Because you, you hear stuff, and you must even hear doctors on, on the media saying stuff, and I, know, I hear economists, and I, say, ah, I start screaming at the, the television and throw newspapers at the TV or whatever. Is there anything out there that you want to pose as a question and give the great answer to? Um, I mean, that's, that in itself is a great question. But I, I think really what the, the question I would ask here is who are the real experts? And a lot, a lot of, the, I mean, for example, one of my, my old mates from university, Professor Dominic Dwyer, is, is one of the fellows who went on the, uh, that went over to Wuhan recently to see where the virus well, who? originated. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I'd be listening to people like, Dominic Dwyer and Professor Nick Talley, who's the the editor of the MJA, who's got more degrees after his name than uh, than a nuclear reactor. Um, this this fellow, these are the experts. Uh, Professor Peter Collinier from ANU, but a lot of people come out and that they reckon they know a lot about this stuff, and they don't seem to give any good advice to people. And and what what I would like to say to everybody, and it's not really a question, it's a comment. Put this in perspective. The coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, has, has changed the world uh, irreparably for so long. It's put our economies into meltdown for a while. And although you say as economists, the economy is doing well now, we're still in an enormous amount of debt because of this. So until we can get our life back to, to normal with a, a sound vaccination program, and we already have very good, well-tested vaccines that have minimal complication rates. So until we do that, we're not going to see our lives getting back to normal. It's not just overseas travel. It's just feeling comfortable being around everybody and, and thinking that that person may have COVID and is going to infect me. And you still see, even in supermarkets, people walking past you not getting too close mm. because you could have COVID. I mean, it's just... it's. Abject nonsense. So, so you've got to realise, as you know, the media is on a 24-hour news cycle. We always have to be talking about something. So, and the more you can induce fear in people, the more you can get people watching what you're saying. Mm. I just want to minimise the fear, get life back to normal. Ross Walker, thanks for joining us on Learning from Legends. My pleasure, my friend. Now, join Paul Ricard, Hamish Douglas, myself, and a range of other financial experts as we share with you key strategies to help you grow your portfolio at our 2021 Virtual Investor Strategy event taking place on the 27th and 28th of April. We are currently offering free registration to this, this event, as well as a bonus seven-day free trial to the Switzer Report for anyone that registers. So, get in quick and secure your spot at switzer.com.au slash events that's switzer.com.au slash events and i can't wait to see you there well i'm talking to justin walsh who's the author of a book called investing with Keynes, and i'm sure a lot of people out there don't know who john maynard Keynes is and uh, we'll explain that to you but uh, justin walsh is a former economics student of mine so i was really glad to see that he took to heart some of the great lessons of john maynard Keynes. so i didn't teach him about Keynes's investing and that's why i'm really interested in justin thanks for joining us it's my pleasure thank you for having me so for people there who don't know you who are you 
Um, well, you've given a little bit of background. Mm. Um, I am an econo- I was an economics law student when when I met you. Um, I was briefly a lawyer post university, mm. and that didn't take. Um, so I became an investment banker. I've worked all around the world in banking, um, both on the deal making side in M and A, but also in asset management. Mm. Uh, more recently, I've gone into what I call deep green uh, food and agriculture uh, type opportunities, mm. and I'm looking to launch a fund in that space. Okay, and and you were an ex member of the Millionaires Factory, as they used to be called. In those Correct. Days. So I guess Twice the, the, over. the Billionaires Factory. Now I was sadly, <laughs> yes, yeah, sadly for me, I left. I left way too early. Okay, yeah. so you're an ex Macquarie Bank banker, but it's interesting that you've um, maintained an interest in in John Maynard Keynes. Why? Um, I recall when I was at university. Um, you know, particularly at New South where you were, mm. and you know, you may agree with this, it was a very dry sort of neoclassical um, instruction. Mm. And I found it, uh, you know, not that gripping, to be honest. Mm. And I did a subject called the history of economic thought. Mm. Who with? Uh, I can't recall. Frank Stilwell or someone it like that. It might have been someone Mr. Like that, Stilwell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we went from Adam Smith all the way through to Keynes, basically. Yep. Um, and... That for me was a much more interesting exercise, mm-hmm. you know, actually dealing with the personalities and, and giving some context to their theories mm-hmm. and the world in which they lived, etc. And of that um, pretty impressive uh, cohort of economists, um, Keynes really stood out for me. I, he's just a super exciting, super interesting guy. You know, he sort of straddled many different worlds, mm-hmm. not just economics, but you know, business, obviously, um, government, the arts. He was part of the Bloomsbury group. You know, Virginia Woolf was his frenemy. You know, they were, they were best of friends and best of enemies. Um, yeah, he was married to a famous ballerina. He too, was. So when he was married uh, or when he got married, he was actually, you know, the lesser the lesser person of the couple. Um, mm. Lydia Lopakova mm. was a world-famous ballerina. She, was, she, she danced with the Bolshoi. You know, she was a very, she had a lot of backstory, you know, a lot of hinterland. Mm. She, you know, she danced for the Tsar when she was seven. She you know, ran off. I think she eloped with some, you know, member of the minor European nobility. Mm. Um, just a really interesting person. So, yeah, look, he, he, he just struck me as uh, an interesting person who happened to be um, in the background of most of the important things that happened in the first half of the 20th century. Mm. So, you know, whether it's a Versailles Peace Treaty um, whether it's, you know, sort of, you know, coming up with a theory that, that, that dragged the world out of the depression, mm. um, whether it was during the war when he was the chief negotiator for Britain, uh, you know, with, your, with uh, the US trying to, you know, get money to uh, finance the war effort. And then, you know, during the war, he was a leading light in Bretton Woods, as you'd know. Um, he was essentially the midwife for the IMF and the World Bank. Um, he was really, and, and you know, that was that was his sort of business, economics, mm. government, you know, hat. Um, he also did a lot in the arts sector too. So, you know, he was um, Britain's first art czar. Um, and, he, you know, he, he got that appointment. That was a hard job because they, they totally. really do rate their um, appreciation of art, don't they, in the UK? Yeah. So, look, that's that's what grabbed me. And, um, you know, he, he, he obviously... You know, had a, he presented a very different vision of economics compared to the to the neoclassical yeah. uh, brigade. <clears throat> you know, he basically said that um, you know markets aren't always the efficiently functioning machine that um, you know that theory dictates. Yeah. That occasionally they can get stalled. 
And his prescription was, look, you know, sometimes the government needs to jump in there and basically create demand yeah. by spending or lowering taxes or a combination of the two. That's that's Keynesianism in my sort of, you know, yeah. that's, that's my elevator sort of description. And, of course, the GFC, um, Ken Henry, who would have been an economist with a lot of neoclassical background, uh, who was head of Treasury, certainly told Wayne Swan it's time to be Keynesian. Absolutely. And I think uh, Josh Frydenberg has been given the exact same advice because of the coronavirus. Absolutely. So the world's, you know, it's, you know the circle has turned um, completely. And, you know, all around the world, you know, we're embracing Keynesian um, prescriptions yeah. once again. So, you know, as you said, it happened in 07, 08 during the, during the GFC. Um, but a lot of major economies reverted to an austerity policy perhaps too soon. Yeah. Um, but I think you can see this time around, and you know, my argument is that it's actually you know, more Keynesian than Keynes. I think Keynes would be sort of thinking <laughs> this, is, this is completely over the top. Yeah. But on the same point, Justin, like none of us have ever studied Pandemics 101. No. no one ever envisaged economies closing down for a few months or even longer than a few months in some countries of the world. So I think, you know, we've often criticised people who have unwisely said this time it's different, yeah. but this time it is different. Absolutely. And Although you've been I'm, a banker, you've never seen interest rates this low. No, that's exactly That's right. historically it, significant. Yeah, and I agree. You know, one thing I would say about uh, the pandemic is that Keynes actually, you know, was there for the for the, um, yeah, you're right. for the Spanish flu pandemic yeah. and he was in Paris for the um, for the Paris peace negotiations mm. in, 19, in early 1919 and he most likely got the flu and he also saw what happened. He, you know, he... he he saw that the economy did sort of shut down mm. temporarily, and then it obviously shut down, um, you know, in a much more significant and, uh, you know, in a, you know, for a longer duration during the thirties. Once, yeah. once the once the crash and the depression kicked in. Okay, so um, I've always known that Keynes was a bit of an investor on the side, and. He uh, looked after the endowment for King's College at Cambridge. And I have read that he was actually pretty good at investing, but you obviously made a bit of a study of uh, his ability to invest. And correct me if I'm wrong, was it he, he who said, I might get it wrong, that a market can remain irrational longer than you can remain liquid? Is that true? Because I think things get quoted and people go, oh, he didn't yeah. really say that, but he did. Keynes was incredibly quotable. He's up mm. there with Mark Twain, Churchill, mm. uh, Oscar Wilde has yeah. been you know, quotable and quotable. Quoted. Yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff like Churchill has been attributed to him yeah. um, that, that, that he may or may not have said. Mm. There's no actual record of him saying that, but that sounds very Keynesian. <laughs> <to me. laughs> yeah, yeah, and and like everyone, everyone pins that quote to him, so yeah. let's, let's stick with it. All right, so um, uh, I, I'm going to ask you about some modern developments that and I'm going to ask you, how would Keynes respond to those modern developments? But what have you learned about – because I think it, I read it in – I haven't been able to read the entire book, but it's made, made the point that he exploited the periodic irrationality of the stock market. So tell us about that and then also tell us how you've become a better investor as a consequence of hanging out with Keynes and all his investing ideas. Okay. Um, so Keynes – 
is an interesting morality tale. It's an interesting journey for Keynes. He basically started as a momentum investor. Yeah. So he basically just tried to anticipate the anticipations of others. He was trying mm. to sort of guess where the market was going to go based get on past performance. Yeah, in as, and out. As close to the right time as possible. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that brought him asunder twice. He almost went broke twice. First, mm. just after the First World War, mm. and that was in the currency markets. And then second time in the late 20s, when he was dabbling in commodities and wow. he got smashed. Um, that perversely saved him um, a bit of money. Into, like it meant that his stock exposure was very limited for the, for the crash. Yeah, okay. Um, but I think it taught him some lessons. And, um, you know, you just made that quote about, um, you know, the market can stay irrational longer than one can stay solvent. He, mm. His other um, interesting quote is that, you know, when circumstances change, I change my mind. Mm, and I think that um, he he was smart enough to realise that you just can't second-guess something as complex as a financial market. It's yeah. an emergent phenomenon. You know, you just can't do it. Like, yeah. no, man, even Keynes, who was pretty smart and had his, you know, wore lots of different hats and mm. sort of understood the world, couldn't second-guess the market. So he was pretty chastened by that. And that led to him completely inverting his investment principles. Mm. So he basically moved from being, um, you know, a speculator to being a value investor. Yep. And that was about trying to assess the intrinsic or, or, or underlying value of a particular stock. Mm. And that's based on a projection of future earnings and sustainable earnings, et cetera. Yep. Um, it's about, um, you know, hanging on for the long haul mm. and, you know, having faith that the market will you know, reassert itself as a as a weighing machine rather than a voting machine to yep. sort of use a Benjamin Graham um, metaphor. Um, and it also meant that, uh, you know, you take pretty large positions in stocks that you have a lot of faith in yeah. where you think there's a margin of safety. So they all sort of interrelate, but mm. he completely inverted his mm. – um, his his investment philosophy, and I actually think that suited his personality because mm. he was the ultimate contrarian. He he didn't like the mob. He was pretty elitist. Mm. Um, he he had no issues, you know, saying something that was contrary to the to the bulk of you know mm. you know to received opinion. Um, so I think it suited him perfectly to be yeah. a contrarian. Even Debono said to me that uh, most high achievers are people who. Look at the um, majority, then think outside the square. Exactly. Yeah, well, a, you can never, you mm. can, you know, by definition, you can't beat the market if you are the market. Mm. And yeah. I think, I think that's what he, you know, realised yeah. after. Yeah, you know, I think he did um, back himself to be mm. smarter than the mob, and yeah. he realised that it's pretty much impossible yeah. uh, on a long term basis. What, what, was he? And I know, look, listening to you, it's exactly what I've learned over the years, and I'm, I haven't studied. Keynes as an investor, mm -hmm. so plenty of Keynes as an economist. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I've learned the same kind of lessons as well. Um, but I, I think the the key, the key uh, oh, you know, a relevant question is: Was he a dollar, a dollar cost averager? That so when he liked a company and the market's telling him he was wrong, he bought more, so he actually brought down the overall cost. No, of that. he was he wasn't particularly a dollar cost averager. Um, one of the other things that marked Keynes as a really good investor was that he would move quickly, mm. um, and he would con he would 
commit substantial capital to a particular opportunity. Mm. Um, he didn't have that sort of slow and steady, I'm going to allocate X dollars per month mm. or you know, per investment period yeah. um, to a stock. And I think dollar cost averaging is more about indexes and ETFs and things like that mm. that are more broadly based. Mm. So no, I wouldn't characterise him as that. You know, Warren Buffett makes the observation that if you don't know enough about the market, that's exactly what you should be doing. Mm. You should be buying index funds. You should be dollar cost averaging. So when the market's really toppy, you're putting less in effectively mm. um, and when it's you know slumping yeah. you're putting more and you're getting more bang for your buck and that's a really good policy if you don't know enough about the market yeah, i find that as well all right so um were there any other salient features of keynes's investment style that was either unique to him or critically important to his success i think the most important thing well, the most the most sort of valuable um, tool in his kit was his temperament. Um, he didn't get phased by these big losses. He he treated money as or money making as a bit of a game. He had that classic sort of um, you know upper middle class insouciance towards mm. that. Um, he did realise that money was, you know, a mean, you know, a really important means to an end, um, and that it was a passport to the possibilities of life. Yeah. But he didn't, he didn't get too hung up on it, and he had this faith in his own decision making and his own analysis. Mm. So if the market uh, moved contrary to his positions, um, it wouldn't particularly phase him. He would, he would, he would look at that like he wouldn't ignore the market. Mm. Uh, he conducted what he called post mortems every year. And he would constantly revise his assumptions and look at the um, stocks in which he was invested. Mm. But he wouldn't get particularly worried if the mob, if the, if the market, um, took a different view to him. And I think that that sort of, you know, that temperament mm. is really important. And you see with someone like Warren Buffett who says continually, you know, don't worry if you look stupid or unimaginative. If you have confidence in the stock, you just stand by yep. and, let, and let the truth out. Okay, well... Um I've always tried to make the stuff I do in economics and business relevant to normal people, so I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm going to ask you some uh, questions that people out there listening to this would want me to ask you because you know you have you've studied a, a very good investor, and so when it comes, say for example, mining stocks, uh, they they can be um, really good at a certain part of the cycle, which we're in right now. Absolutely, um, but they're great until they're not. Yeah, uh, and you can take profit early and accept that you might get out one year too early. Yeah. Uh, that's cyclical. You know, you, you work the cycle out. But there are different sorts of stocks that can be cyclical and structural, uh, linked to cyclical and structural things, like the tech stock boom yep. of the moment. It's, they're both growth stocks, so they benefit from the cycle, mm. but they're also talking about a structural change yeah, in the way change. we do business. Yep. And so when the tech stocks were being sold for a couple of weeks ago, I took it as an opportunity to, to buy some more because I think the structure, uh, um, the structural change is such that a lot of these tech stocks, not all the these tech stocks, uh, are going to do well in the future. That might mean I'll have to be out of the money for a year or two, but they'll come back again. Um, how, do you, how do you view tech stocks as a consequence of being a Keynes expert? Um, the first thing I would say is that Keynes was a bit of a tech investor in his day. Right. So, you know, the tech was obviously very the different. Cars were being big. Cars. Ones. So, mm. he, you know, he had a big stake in Austin Motor Company uh, in the UK. He, yeah. had, he had stakes in US car manufacturers. He had stakes in Radio Corporation of America, which was, mm. you know, one of those high-flying stocks that was yeah. completely brought to earth in the 30s. 
Um, he had stakes in, you know, pharmaceutical companies, etc. So he was very open to, um, you know, to emerging opportunities, emerging um, uh, companies and sectors. Um, I would also note that he was very open to different asset classes. So, you know, in his time, equities were actually an alternative asset class. You know, it was it was considered a bit racy, and certainly mm. endowments like the ones he managed, mm. which had been around for more than five hundred years, generally would invest in real estate and bonds only. They mm. wouldn't invest in equity. So he was very open to new opportunities, mm. and I think that was one of his great um, skills as an investor, mm. and one of the things that really you know supported his uh, performance. In terms of today. <laughs> Um, what would Kane say about tech stocks? Mm. Mm. I know it's an easy question. It's but not somebody, an easy question. <laughs> no, it's not Look, easy I think, question. you know, Keynes was all about, he was very forward looking. When he looked at a, at a company, he would look at sustainable competitive advantage, yeah. what he called ultimate earning power. Yeah. So there needed to be a moat around the company. And expanding moat helps too. Exactly, a deepening and expanding moat. So you see that with um, obviously the Googles of the world and you know a few of the other star uh, tech companies. Mm. You see it here in Australia with something like CSL, for example, mm. which has IP moats that are pretty significant. And, yeah. you know, that share price has gone bananas over the last 20 years. Mm. Um, so I think he would be open to it. I do think that he his suspicion would be that um, tech stocks are overvalued um, because there's just a lot of funny money in the world at the moment, yeah. largely because governments have adopted Keynesian prescriptions. But yeah. as I said earlier, I think, you know, they may have over-egged the pudding a bit. Um, you know, money is getting channeled into pretty much anything. Um, he was always uh, very um, wary of stock markets um, when they become a casino. Mm. And I think we're sort of in that you can see there's a lot of you know, what he called game players yeah. um, who are just putting money into things because they quite like the idea or the technology or they use the services or the, or the app or whatever it might be. But without any clear understanding of, you know, where's the money going to come from, how sustainable is the competitive advantage. So you look at Tesla, for example. Mm. Um, yep, yeah, you know, electric cars are obviously going to be big over the next mm decade or two or three, but there's a lot of potential players out there and you need yeah. to be comfortable that there's a sustainable advantage if you're putting all this money into something like Tesla. Mm. So I think he would be, um, you know, he, he also, like you mentioned, uh, mining stocks, he also had massive positions in, in mining stocks. Um, and I think that he might be more comfortable um, investing in the Rios and the BHPs of the world yeah. Um, in the expectation that we are going to, you know, this is another roaring 20s coming mm. our way and there's going to be a huge upsurge in, you know, in demand for metals, et cetera. Um, so why not, you know, sort of buy this, you know, sell the shovels in the gold rush rather than, you know, try to dig the gold out. You know, be, be, be part of that rather than, you know, sort of rolling the dice on these tech yeah. stocks that the whole market loves at the moment. Mm. But who knows? I'm not, you know, I can't, I can't speak for him. But I think, I think he'd be more interested in, in some slightly more boring stocks that actually have, that are either earning money or you know have a pretty clear path to earnings in the uh -huh. near term. Are you a better investor after spending your life with Keynes? Yeah, I think time? so. Like I, I think one of the valuable things is that um, it gives you a framework and a and a sort of checklist for investments. Um, and Keynes was very. Uh, you know, he didn't really um, 
except that you could value shares to the cent like you see nowadays. You know, he thought there was a spurious precision to, um, you know, a lot of this share analysis. Mm. And his was more a qualitative rather than a quantitative sort of um, view of um, guessing for, guess share Guessing future analysis. income is a guess. Exactly, exactly. Like, mm. you know, look at the pandemic. Like, you know, it was going to happen at some stage, but who would have thought that yeah. it would have fallen? And that pretty much every asset class, you know, went through the floor just over a year ago yep. and then who could have anticipated the government response, the investor response. So no I think, I think you know, his, his sort of, um, you know, in his reincarnation as a value investor, he sort of, you know, he, he embraced what I'd call a get rich slowly mm. sort of, mm. um, you know, way of um, making money. Yeah. Just, you know, it's, it's time in the market. It's not market timing. So, um, so the name of the book is Investing with Keynes. The author is Justin Walsh. And Justin, thanks for joining us on the program. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Before I go, if you're looking for stock market tips, always remember the switzerreport.com.au website. You can check that one out. But also, my television program on Monday night and on Thursday night, it's just like I used to do on the Sky Business channel, but now it's on the YouTube channel. So you go to Switzer Investing on YouTube and you'll find the latest shows and the previous shows as well, which have some fantastic tips from some of the best stock market pickers in the country. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>